Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. And the morning text is found in the third chapter. It's the 18th verse in the New American Standard Bible. Reads as follows. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Have you ever heard the phrase six degrees of separation? It was coined in 1929 by a Hungarian novelist. His name was Frisia Carinti. He introduced this theory, Six Degrees of Separation, in his short story entitled Chains. This idea of six degrees of separation was popularized by an Irish-American playwright by the name of John Gare in a play which was in 1993, turned into a movie entitled Six Degrees of Separation. The premise of this theory is that each human is no more than six steps away from every other human on the planet. Access, according to this theory, is possible through a friend of 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 a friend when you go as far as you have to go to be connected with someone else, anyone else in the world. Now, when I heard that theory years ago, I thought, this is impossible. That's far-fetched. There's no way. And then I began to apply the hypothesis in my own life. I thought of many people whom I know, who know very important people, Not that any person's unimportant. That's the lie of the devil. Every person is important. But you know what I mean. And I thought, particularly in this connection for the morning, I thought of my little brother in my social fraternity, Kappa Alpha Order, when I was in college at the University of Memphis. It was called Memphis State University then. His name is Brad Martin. Brad became the youngest elected Person to the Tennessee House of Representatives in all Tennessee history in 1972. He was not even 21 when he was elected, but by the time he was sworn in, he was 21, so he qualified under the restrictions for holding that particular office. Brad went on to become the CEO of Saks Fifth Avenue. He also was the president of the University of Memphis, his and my alma mater. He was a close associate of Lamar Alexander. Some of you know Lamar Alexander's name. Lamar is the senior senator from the state of Tennessee. Lamar himself is a person who was a president of the university, the University of Tennessee. He was the governor of Tennessee. He was the secretary of education under George W. Bush. And as I mentioned earlier, he's a senator in the United States Senate. I don't know Lamar Alexander, but Brad and Lamar are business partners. They're co-owners of a beautiful resort in the Smoky Mountains called Blackberry Farm. They're the only two people who own residences on that piece of property. I was invited by Brad to go and spend some time 
in the year 2005 on that farm in his guest house, which is bigger than my house, by the way. Unbelievable. He was the consummate host. He's that kind of man. And he's a follower of Jesus, by the way, which is very encouraging. He was when we knew each other in college. That's one of the reasons I wanted him for my little brother in my fraternity. But let me tell you some more about Brad. In his office, if we were to go there today, it's in Memphis, Tennessee, our hometown. In his office, there's a photograph, really more than one photograph. And in one picture in particular, he's standing beside Jack Nicholson. And this was not simply a photo op for Brad. They are friends. Now, I don't know Jack Nicholson. I don't care to know Jack Nicholson. But Jack Nicholson knows a bunch of people, wouldn't you guess? Just think about it for a moment. I'm sure he knows President Clinton and Mrs. Clinton. And they know the Obamas. And I mean, it just goes on and on. You see the possibility of this theory? Six degrees of separation. In that same picture, Julius Irving, better known as Dr. J. Now, Dr. J, I'd like to know the people Dr. J knows, to be honest with you. One of the greatest basketball players in the history of the game. He's in the Hall of Fame, and I'm sure he knows Magic Johnson. I could know Magic Johnson. There's no way I could get introduced. But if Brad were willing to introduce me to his friend Julius Serving, and Julius, who is a follower of Christ, I'm told to, he might be willing to introduce me to Magic, and that would open up a whole world of possibilities, wouldn't it? (laughs) Think about this. Here is a friend of mine whom I knew when he was a nobody. And he has become somebody. And he could be the one who opens the door to a lot of relationships for me, if I really were interested in those relationships developing. Now, you think about yourself, well, that's you, Mike. It's not about me. But our mayor, DeMargo, many of you may know him personally. But I would bet everybody in this room, if you're a native of El Paso, you live here, not a native, but you reside in El Paso. You know somebody who knows 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 DeMargo. And guess, DeMargo, I know on more than one occasion when George W. Bush was president of the United States, he and his wife Adair were hosted in the White House. And that just opens up a whole another world, doesn't it? So this whole idea is fascinating, isn't it? And you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with what we're talking about today? Well, the Word of God teaches us, actually in this verse that we looked at, that you and I are one step away from God, who knows everyone in the universe. One step away. That step is the person of Jesus Christ, one degree of separation between us and God. And that is the person, Jesus Christ. If we know Jesus, remarkably, Jesus has called us His friends. He says, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what what he does, that is, the master does. But I have called you friends. Jesus has called us who know Him friends. And He has opened up a whole world of possibility to us by introducing us to God the Father. 
And consequently, we have that relationship with Him. And think about us here in this room. There's nobody in this room who knows everyone else in this room. But it's possible that we would. And frequently, when I'm in a small group, when I meet with men in a small group or people individually, I'll look around the table and I'll say this to my men that I'm working with, discipling many times. I'll say, you know, if it were not for Jesus Christ, we would not even know each other. We would not care about each other. But Jesus has introduced us to one another. And consequently, we have been introduced to God. Of course, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And do you know what the primary command was in Jesus' mind when he made that statement? In John chapter 15, it was found in chapter 13, where he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That is the key commandment in that discussion of Jesus. We love each other. We are the friends of Jesus. And he gives us access to the God of the universe. This is mind-blowing, but it's true. In Ephesians 2.18, the Bible says, Through Christ, we have access by the Spirit to the Father. We have that access through Jesus, right? And He is that one degree of separation, and we go through Him to know the Father. This verse of Scripture, it's a very simple statement. It's easy for a child to understand it. But let's consider it together in preparation for the Lord's Supper today. Verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, first of all, we want to consider the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus according to this passage? Well, we are told He is the just one. And He died for us who are unjust. In 1 John chapter 1, verse, chapter 2 rather, verse 1, John writes these words. He says, My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Remember that there is none righteous, no, not one. Remember that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. He lives in an ineffable light. We cannot approach Him except through Jesus Christ. And Christ, the righteous one, is the one who makes it possible for us to come to the Father. What does this text say about Jesus? What did He do? We know who He is. He's the righteous one. There's much more which could be said about Jesus. But that is sufficient for our consideration this morning. He is the one who died for sins. He died in His body. He suffered as a human being Fully God, yet fully man, He suffered for us. The greatest 
aspect of his suffering was not physical. The greatest aspect was spiritual. Because God the Father made Jesus the Son to become sin on our behalf. And in that act, Jesus became what John would have heard to have written if I had gone further in quoting from 1 John chapter 2. The propitiation for our sin. That big theological term, which simply means Jesus was the one who was punished for all of the sins of the world, is what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Including yours and mine, He became the one upon whom all the wrath of God was unleashed. Talk about fury, shock and awe. Jesus experienced it to the max for us when He died on the cross. He suffered for our sin. He voluntarily laid down His life for us. He says, once more appealing to what He says about this in John's Gospel, greater love has no one than this, than He laid down His life for His friends. We were His enemies, but He turned us into friends when He laid down His life for us. He took the initiative. He's the one who is responsible for that. The person of Jesus. Who is He? He's the just or the righteous one. He's our advocate. He's the propitiation for our sins. What has He done? He died for our sins. But let's consider the purpose of Jesus. What was His purpose? What was His assignment? This text tells us, For Christ also died for sins, once for all the just, for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. That's Jesus' assignment. To bring us to God. I remember when I came to know Christ as a boy, it was a real encounter with the living Christ. Jesus became my life that day. I didn't understand much about it except I knew I was a sinner. I knew if something didn't happen that I couldn't do to take care of my sins, I was destined for eternity in hell. I knew that. That was presented that way to a boy. I knew that only Christ, who was my sacrifice for my sin, and He is alive, I knew that He could save me. But the emphasis in the way the gospel was presented to me was on the benefits that are mine as one who would receive Christ. And who would argue the benefits are incredible, are they not? Unbelievable. But especially the emphasis in the presentation of the gospel message, was escape from hell, which is no small thing. I'm not making light of that. That's awful to think about. Eternal life and all that's suggested by eternal life, including an abundant life in this life, very important. But there was no strong mention of getting God, but there was this emphasis on getting things from God. Jesus died for our sins. Why? So He might bring us to God. What do you think that means? What implication does that have for our lives? This is what it means. Christ was sent on a mission by God the Father to get a bunch of folks like you and me, and He presented us to the Father. The Scripture says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus 
the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, what joy is that referring to? We get a little help from 1 Thessalonians 2, from Paul. In the last two verses, he asks, what is our joy or our crown of exaltation in the presence of the Lord? It is you. Look, when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, He came and He presented us to the Father. We came into the possession of the Father. And at the same time, He became our possession. He is our Father, God, the God of the universe. This gospel is incredible. And that is the main purpose. All the other things leading up to it are necessary and significant. And there are many, many blessings that are ours as a result. But the big blessing is God Himself. John Piper wrote a book ten years ago entitled, God is the Gospel. I did not read the book, but I got the gist of it, knowing the heart of Piper, since I've read many of his books and listened to him often online. And the point is, God is the Gospel. It's not about what God can do for us that's primary in the heart and mind of God, but it's God Himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the last couple of verses, this is what Paul writes. For talking to us, okay? He's talking to the Corinthians, but he's talking to us. The Spirit of God is. Listen to what God says to us this morning. For all things belong to you. If we know Jesus, all things belong to us. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, all great preachers, or the world, amazing, the whole world belongs to us. Or death, or things present, or things to come. For all things belong to you. We've got it all, do we not? In Christ, in God. We must realize that God is not just better than anything the world has to offer. That's the way the gospel is pitched. And I use the word pitched advisedly. God's not just better than anything the world has to offer. God is better than the things He offers to us and gives us. God is the prize. It's not the forgiveness, as important as that is. It's not every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, according to the book of Ephesians, as important as those things are. Grace and mercy and peace and so forth and so on. There's an infinite number of possibilities as it relates to blessing. But God is even better than anything which He can offer. The Scripture says that Christ has come to live in our lives. Jesus didn't just come to give us heaven, but He came to give us Himself. And in Him, we have everything we will ever need. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Christ is our wisdom. Do you need wisdom? 
If you have Jesus, you've got it. You have to apply yourself to what the Scriptures say, to read it, to receive the wisdom. But it's there for the having if you know Christ. You understand the Scripture. That is one of the indications that a person really is born again. The person understands the Bible. Not everything, but most of it you get. Jesus is not only our wisdom, He's our righteousness. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is also our sanctification. That word means He's the one who enables our growth. He's the one who precipitates our growth. He is our holiness. We sang holiness, holiness. This is what I long for. Well, all we have to do is turn to Christ. Long for Christ and you have wisdom. Long for Christ, you have righteousness. Long for Christ, you have sanctification. And the last thing that Paul mentions there in 1 Corinthians, he is your redemption. All of that and more is bundled in Christ. If we have Jesus, we have everything and more than we will ever need. Last week, Ryan sang the song, Give Me Jesus. Do you remember that song? Were you here? Give me Jesus in the morning when I rise. Give me Jesus. When I am all alone, give me Jesus. When the moment comes that I will die, and this is really important, isn't it? Give me Jesus. That is the heartbeat of a person who understands the purpose for which she or he has been saved. You have been saved to belong to God and to know God and to be used by God to glorify God. That's why we were created in the first place. And we have all of that in Jesus. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Last week we looked at Colossians chapter 3, which says, Seek the things above, not the things on earth. Because you have died and you are hidden with Christ in God. And then he goes on to say, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed at the second coming. Who is our life? If we know God through Christ, Jesus is our life. He is everything and more that we will ever need in this life or the life to come. Do you cherish God and Jesus more than you cherish the things that they can give to you? Jesus' repeated call on people's lives was a simple statement, command, follow me. Keep on following me. The psalmist says that we are to look to Jesus, to the God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Look to God and we will be radiant. Are you lacking in joy? Look to the Lord. There's nothing around me that recommends being joyful. It really is a dark time in which we live in general. And many of us have darkness around our lives. But we look to Jesus. Don't look at what's around you. Look to Christ. And this is not escapism. This is the real deal that enables you and me to thrive in a world that's dark. We light up the world when we understand this. Because we reflect the light of Christ. Christ is like the sun. We're like the moon. We look to Him 
the light is refracted and pointed to other people. We are the light of the world. And we need to understand that we are to be people who focus on the Lord. I asked for Psalm 131 to be read. And I want to read it again and make just a few comments. David is the human author. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. David's heart had been proud, and his eyes had been lifted up. Nor do I involve myself in great matters. From an early age, David was involved in great matters. Are things too difficult for me? This is what happens in our lives. Most everyone in this room who has lived a while, most everyone in this room has had ambitions that were selfish. And we're proud. But we forget, but God sees to it that we become aware of it, that He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Did he oppose David in his pride? Do you remember when Nathan confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba? And he was so arrogant. The idea of someone taking the little single ewe lamb from a poor shepherd, the only one he had, the very idea, punish the person who did it, kill him, execute him. And then Nathan said, you're the man. Whoa. He was humbled. He responded properly to that. But look at verse 2. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 19th century, in his book, The Treasury of David, which has to do with the Psalms, his interpretation of the book of Psalms, in that great work, he calls this psalm a reference to the Christian's second conversion. Now, we are only converted once. But as we progress in our walk with the Lord, and we are proud at points, and the Lord gets serious about removing the pride away from us by disciplining us, so there's nothing that we can take pride in anymore, then He's ready to use us and. I love the word picture that David paints. He says, I have composed and quieted my soul. The suggestion is his soul was in turmoil because of his arrogance and because of the discipline which came into his life. And he couldn't understand why he was being disciplined. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. So what's the picture? The idea here is that the Lord Himself owns us, and He loves us, and those whom He loves, He disciplines, and it's confusing to us when we're disciplined by God, when we suffer some loss, be it a relational loss, or loss of health, or loss of money, or loss of position, or any number of other losses. Does it perplex you as a child of God? And here's one of the reasons it perplexes us. It's because we have been told over and over and over again that God owes us something. And that God would never dare to bring trouble into your life. On the contrary, His love is expressed in many ways and probably no more importantly than when He disciplines us so that we will not continue on a collision course with disaster Because He humbles us. 
That's the way of our Lord. So that we can reach a place where we're like a weaned child. Have you ever watched a child who is being weaned from its mother's breast? Have you ever watched it happen? I have a picture in my mind of my own sister who is being weaned. And she was just fitful for I don't know how long. I only have one little picture in my mind. I don't know how many days it took. And it was a reflection of her own confusion. What was happening? This one who had given her life, humanly speaking, the one who had carried her in the womb for nine months, who had been a wonderful mother to her, all of a sudden, boom, the plug had been pulled. And she was confused. I was not old enough to understand that I should not just look at my sister, but look at my mother. As my sister was suffering, my mother was suffering. Because she loves, did at least, she's in heaven, I think she still loves my sister. She loved my sister. I, I didn't get that at that time. I'm further down the road, I get it now. But this is the relationship we have with our Lord. So that after he had been disciplined, David had been, now he was ready to be satisfied just to be near his Father. Do you have that sort of heart for the Lord? Do you enjoy just being with the Lord? And have you reached that point of maturity in your life where if the Lord never did another thing for you, you would not have a complaint? You wouldn't blame the Lord for ditching you, ignoring you, not doing for you what you want Him to do for you. You will never grow spiritually until you understand this. And you either voluntarily submit yourself to the Lord, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He will exalt you. The answer to worldliness, we talked about worldliness last week. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. In the end times, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. The answer is to be found in realizing that God owns us. We are His children and we are also His servants. And He has given us Himself. Unbelievable. Jesus has come to indwell us by the Spirit. Unbelievable. Keith Green is a name that's not known by many people in the room, probably. But he was a young man who was born into a Jewish family. The family had rejected Judaism. They were practitioners of Christian science. At the age of ten... He had already composed 40 songs that were publishable at the age of 10. At the age of 11, he signed a record deal with Decca Records. He and his father together, he was a minor, so he had to have the father's consent. And he was quickly featured on the Steve Allen show. We older people remember that show, the Jack Benny show. Also, he was on I've Got a Secret. I loved that, that show when I was a boy. And his secret was, I am employed as an 11-year-old as a rock and roll singer. He wrote rock and roll. His first record, which he wrote, and which was in a 45, remember the old 45s? It's entitled A Go-Go-Getter. 
was the title of it. He was being put forward by Decca as being the first preteen rock and roll star. His career didn't go as was expected because Donny Osmond came on the scene. And he became his quick replacement. But we see in him a man who came to know Jesus after having lived a life of free love and dabbled in Eastern mysticism at the age of 19, along with the woman whom he married and had lived with for one year. They both came to know Jesus. She was of Jewish descent also. They became Jewish followers of Jesus as their Messiah. And together they wrote beautiful music. He was killed at the age of 28, along with his two eldest children. Josiah was three, Bethany two. Melody was home with their one-year-old child. She was pregnant six weeks with the child who never saw his father. Listen to what this 28-year-old wrote about this whole discussion about God's being the gospel. He says, If your heart takes more pleasure in reading novels or watching TV or going to the movies or talking to friends than in just sitting alone with God and embracing Him, then how are you going to handle forever and ever in His presence? You'll be bored to tears in heaven if you're not ecstatic about God. Now, wow. There's a lot of truth in that statement and it helps us to understand this man. We love to sing here, there is a Redeemer. Do you love that little chorus we sing? I love it. He was the composer along with his wife, Melody Green. He died at the age of 28, as I mentioned, in the early 1980s in a plane crash. But that's what his heart was, and that's a message through him to us today. Now, when we understand this matter, the result of it is, when we really know God, we want to bring people to the Lord too. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. It says, the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is the purpose. We were saved in order to glorify the Lord and enjoy Him forever. We were designed for that. That's what God has for you. And if you're not doing that, you are missing out terribly. This is the best life that can possibly be lived because it puts God where He belongs right smack dab in the middle of your life and my life. And we want to bring others to Jesus. And we can. Because there are only two degrees of separation between that person you're wanting to introduce to Jesus and God, right? You, first degree. Jesus, second degree. God. God has given us the incredible privilege not simply to know Him and to be His possession and to enjoy Him forever. But He's given us the privilege of being a friend of His who befriends someone else. The Bible says about us who know Christ that we are a priesthood of believers. There's not a believer in this room who is not a priest or a priestess according to the Word of God. 
And what does a priest do? The Pope is described in Latin as the Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex means bridge builder. He is the primary, the maximum bridge builder. A priest puts men in touch with God and God in touch with men. Women could be substituted there. It puts people in touch. And that's what the Lord would have for us. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.28, We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man and woman mature or complete. Now, to whom do you think Paul was anticipating presenting us to? To God. To the Lord. This is our privilege. There's no greater privilege than to be an emissary, an ambassador for Christ. I cannot help but think about the men, the four probably men, we don't know exactly how many, who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They, the Scripture says in the book of Mark, they brought him to Jesus. He couldn't get there on his own. He was paralyzed. That's a picture of people without Christ. They have no way of getting there. But we who know the Lord, can bring them there. Through our prayers, of course. But it's instructive that when Jesus saw the faith of this of them, it, it would include the man's faith, perhaps, but it was the faith of these friends. More than one. Get a partner and start praying for people who don't know Christ. You can lead them to Jesus. He will find them through you. In Isaiah 43, 25, this is what the Word of God says. God speaks, listen carefully. He said, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. Now, listen carefully. For my own sake. You were saved for God's sake. You might think it's for my sake. Yes, it is, but that's a secondary purpose. The main idea, you were saved for God's sake. What does God have at stake in your salvation? His glory. You can be used by God in an incredible way. I I mentioned John Piper's name early in the sermon. I want to read an excerpt from one of his writings. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And the people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there, those people will not be in heaven. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. We have been given this great opportunity and responsibility to get people to God. But we have to understand the purpose of our salvation for that to happen. What is the purpose? To be brought to God. Somebody got you to God. Jesus did, we know that. But there was somebody who cared enough about you to either pray for you or get you there or both. Maybe there was a team of people who got you there. And one of the things about a church that is powerful, a church that understands its mission, A church which is filled with the Holy Spirit is a conduit for getting people to God. When we come together on Sunday morning, God wants to use us as a body to represent Christ to the people who come here who don't know Him. To be full of Him and seeking after Him. 
Better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart.